Welcome to Cytofix Mayviri, the podcast from the Monash Faculty of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. I'm John Palmer. This is part two of our episode on the safety of the new coronavirus vaccines that are rolling out across the world. Part one of the episode focused on what we're calling the merits, which is to say the science of the various vaccine candidates, how they work and what we know about them. This part is about procedure, which we're really treating in two different senses of that word. One sense is the regulatory processes that exist to protect us as healthcare consumers. What do organisations like the Food and Drug Administration in the US or the Therapeutic Goods Administration in Australia look at to make their decisions when they decide that something is safe to give us? And the other sense is our own thought processes as healthcare consumers. How do we make sure we're assessing the evidence dispassionately and rigorously and not being ruled by our emotions? This distinction between merits and procedure is found in a lot of disciplines. But most pertinently, it pops up in the area of administrative law and specifically judicial review of administrative action. This is the body of law that comes into play when somebody takes issue with a decision that is being made by a statutory body, perhaps a a local council or maybe a liquor licensing board, and they seek to have it reviewed in court. Often in these cases, courts are forbidden from examining a decision on the merits because that would mean putting themselves in the shoes of the decision maker, which would be overreach. But they can, however, look at the procedure by which the decision was made. Uh, This situation has led to a lot of fairly deep examination by the courts over the years about what the characteristics of a fair and rigorous decision-making procedure are. And given that what we are trying to construct here is a fair and rigorous decision-making process, albeit not for delegated authority but for our own personal decision-making, I thought it might be interesting to talk to an administrative lawyer to see if they could provide any insights we could apply. It particularly seems like there might be something useful in the concept of relevant and irrelevant considerations, which are two of the major grounds of judicial review. If a decision maker is found to have taken irrelevant considerations into account or to have failed to take into account mandatory relevant considerations, that means they didn't follow a fair process. But that begs a question. How do you determine which is which? Dr. Maria O'Sullivan is a senior lecturer in the Faculty of Law at Monash and a member of the Castown Centre for Human Rights Law. Her teaching and research interests are public law, human rights and refugee law, and this is what she had to say. Irrelevant considerations are normally something that's read in. So typically the legislation will say um, the decision maker must take into account A, B and C. Um, it depends on the context, obviously, but yeah, that's quite typical. Um, and then it might say in any other relevant matter. So then you've got to look at, um, uh, say, in environmental matters, you might imply something into that list that's not specifically stated. Um, and then with irrelevant considerations, again, it's a matter of what we call statutory interpretation. So looking at that provision, looking the, at the importance of that, and then saying, well, we'll imply um, that, you know, uh, financial gains of people um, in a mining area are irrelevant. Uh, in fact, they may be relevant depending on the legislation. But, yes, typically uh, relevant considerations are stated in the legislation because the, the parliament actually wants that to be quite clear. But you can also imply those into the legislation. So if something isn't explicitly stated, you look at the purpose of the legislation to determine whether it's relevant or not? Yes, and you can look at the objects clause. So again, say in environmental matters, it may say the object of this act is to protect the environment and to promote biodiversity, etc. Now it may say and to also make decisions in the public interest or in the national interest. 
So as I said, if there's a mining application and, uh, and a body says, well, we want this to go ahead because it brings in jobs and you haven't considered that, you would need to look at the operative provision. If there's nothing there, then you'd say, well, how should we interpret this given the objects of the, of the Act? Um, if it mentions financial or economic considerations, then you might then imply some relevant consideration into the operative provision. If there's nothing about your particular matter, say economic considerations in the objects clause, it, it might that might make it more difficult. Not impossible because you could use other parts of the Act, but, yeah, primarily you're looking at the, the objects clause. So what's the benefit of declaring something irrelevant? Don't, don't we want the decision maker to take all of the information into account? Yes, but some things are irrelevant. For example, again, in... the refugee area, if someone said that um, a person could go back to Afghanistan because the US is doing peace talks and the Taliban are going to be the the government and and they're going to be peaceful, that may be irrelevant given the fact that the person has a risk profile. Uh, So, yes, the decision-maker can assess a wide variety of information but there are some things that they shouldn't be considering. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, th- as I said, maybe the, the better example is that environmental matter where um, if the legislation doesn't allow for economic considerations, they only want the decision maker to look at biodiversity, protecting wildlife, etc., if the legislation makes that clear, then the decision maker can only look at those biodiversity and wildlife issues. So if, as Maria says, we determine whether or not something is relevant to a decision making process by referring back to the purpose, what we're trying to achieve, where does that leave us with the COVID vaccines? Well, for the sake of argument, let's articulate our purpose as something like making the choice that results in the best outcome health-wise. So what kind of things might we be tempted to take into account that aren't actually relevant to that goal? One of the topics that immediately springs to mind when we apply that principle to our own individual decision-making is cognitive bias. Now, obviously, you, our erudite listeners, have brains that are infallible logic machines that flawlessly weigh the evidence and inevitably reach the correct conclusion. But many other people aren't so lucky. In fact, Human beings are famously bad at assessing risk because we're all prey to all manner of cognitive biases that prevent us from weighing evidence dispassionately. Monash is home to an organisation called BehaviourWorks Australia. BehaviourWorks conducts research in collaboration with behaviour change people in government and industry and not-for-profits to work on addressing social and environmental and organisational problems, and in doing so, they inevitably draw upon a lot of this research around cognitive bias. Dr. Morgan Tier is a research fellow at BehaviourWorks with a background in psychology and a focus on health and safety. So he took us through some of the key factors that are likely to affect our thinking. I guess it comes down to how we process information. And I guess probably a good starting point for people to, to have is that this sort of realisation or understanding that, that the way that we see the world or the way we perceive the world is not necessarily correct or that our mind perfectly models the world around us because it it doesn't Um, we tend to that's not to say what our mind um, does isn't amazing it it absolutely is Um, but the way that we process the vast majority of information in our day-to-day life is unconscious 
um, without effort, processing lots and lots of data, prioritizing what data is important versus what isn't, um, and then uh, coming up with, with behavioral responses if, if required. And that's all happening you know, at, at the millisecond level um, because of just how computationally insane uh, our, our brains and our minds are. But that process uh, doesn't come without errors. Um, it's just that the errors so far, you know, in, in the history of our species, those errors haven't come with enough costs that they would be evolved out um, or not selected for. Uh, in fact, the opposite, that because we can process information so quick, quickly and rapidly with such little um, negative outcome, that's actually a really uh, evolutionarily advantageous um, system to use. But we're at, um, you know, talking about decisions that were made tens of thousands of years ago on, on grass plains, it's very different to talking about decisions about whether to vaccinate uh, against a, um, uh, a really debilitating virus like coronavirus uh, or not. Um, and so as we've kind of evolved, um, you know, not just biologically, but culturally, um, we've also picked up this ability to uh, think more deliberatively, so more consciously rather than unconsciously. Um, just because there is that distinction doesn't necessarily mean that those two systems are 100% independent. Uh, and while we can sit down with information and select what's important to us and use that to, to arrive at a decision, the way that we go about that process still has flex of this uh, effortless, shortcutty, um, fast thinking. Um, and because it's so sort of fundamental to the way that we process information, it's really hard to be aware of it all the time. So I guess if the question is, uh, can we rigorously and dispassionately assess evidence to come at a conclusion? Um, we can. We uh, it's just that that often comes with uh, elements of this, uh, you might say, irrational or, or um, emotional uh, or fast assumption, uh, a sort of assumption-based approach with it as well. Um, and so if we can start to understand some of these um, errors or, I mean, you can call them errors. I'm a bit hesitant. I think they're sort of side effects more likely. Side effects of... Um, what has been to this date a very successful way of processing information. But if we can start to understand those side effects, we, we can start to um, use that to change behavior in, in more effective ways. So for example, if, if I look at the news, and I'm not saying this is the case, but if I look at the news and um, I see that the news media is saturated with stories of concern or, or worry or anxiety about the vaccine, then that sort of if, if I can easily remember um, those news stories when I when it comes to me making a decision, then then the ease of which that that memory comes to me um, is likely to weigh into my decision. Um, I might overstate or overestimate just how much worry there actually is. Um, and so that would be an example of what's called the availability heuristic. There's this kind of balance between well, what is um, like what is the actual state of affairs and what is more likely than not. But if the, if the unlikely is easier to remember, then it sort of overweights the effect of that event um, on our ability to recall um, those sorts of rates. 
confirmation bias will be a, a big one um, in this case. So if people are uh, trying to engage in that effortful, deliberative, you know, do, do the right thing and, and consult at all the evidence that they can to make their own decision, confirmation bias is the case where if we already are leaning towards one view or opinion or decision that we prioritize, not deliberately, um, although sometimes it is deliberate, but we sort of unconsciously prioritize information yeah. that already agrees with that view. Um, you know, it feels good to to find something that confirms my belief is, is correct, even if that evidence is maybe itself not correct or, or, or false. But, you know, if I'm, if I think that there is something to be worried about and I, and it's, I come across a story that says there isn't and a story that says there is, um, when push comes to shove, I'll probably give more weight to the one that confirms my existing view. And so when people are searching the internet for, for, um, things to help them make a decision, um, you know, ignoring how, um, search engine algorithms work, they might, there's a, there's some evidence that they might confirm these sort of confirmatory bias approaches. Um, if I'm, if I'm searching the internet for evidence, um, it's just easier for me to, to pay attention to the, the stuff that already agrees with what I think. People are motivated internally, and this is kind of getting into social psychology and, and personality science, but people do have motivations to behave in ways that allow them to feel control. And so if, you know, the, um, I think that's potentially something that, that um, fringe uh, belief groups have when there are large systems um, or groups of organizations working together. Um, rebelling against uh, the sorts of things that those large systems and groups are working towards is a way that people can feel some, some element of control. Um, and that can be quite powerful in, in determining someone's decisions, beliefs, attitudes, and ultimately behavior. Somebody who has thought a lot about how those sorts of cognitive side effects, as Morgan referred to them, might play into decisions around vaccination is Dr. Sudax Murdan from our Farm Alliance partner, University College London. Sudax has expertise in the delivery of drugs and vaccines, as well as pharmacy and pharmacy education. And as a result, she's recently developed a course for pharmacists on dealing with vaccine hesitancy. Most people who harbour misgivings about the COVID vaccines probably wouldn't define themselves as vaccine hesitant more generally, much less as anti-vaxxers, which is a term we now tend to steer away from precisely because it's so polarising. But I think our working presumption going into this was that COVID-specific vaccine hesitancy was based in a faith in the process by which medicines normally come to market and a concern that, in this case, those processes had been dangerously curtailed. General vaccine hesitancy, on the other hand, would be almost the opposite, a distrust in that process and a belief that it's kind of, I guess, irredeemably flawed or maybe even corrupt. But as Sudax reveals, it's not black and white. The first thing to say is that vaccine hesitancy has existed as long as vaccines have. So, for example, when the first vaccine was produced, they are, there is a nice cartoon of people, you know, uh, growing, you know, the cowpox, smallpox thing. Like there were drawings of people growing horns. So they were saying, oh, you're putting something from the cow in us. So therefore we will become like animals. So actually, vaccine hesitancy has uh, has existed for a very long time. Uh, with uh, Andrew Wakefield, it became so. Let's say that's a more recent, yeah, the most the big event, let's say, that uh, put 
um, vaccines in the news and vaccine hesitancies, and more people became vaccine hesitant. So I suppose where does it come from, vaccine hesitancy? Um, some of it could be complacency, like if everybody is vaccinated, I don't need to. A lot of it is, oh, these diseases we are vaccinating against, mumps, measles, rubella, everything else that we do, like smallpox, you know, not smallpox, um, uh, meningococcus, pneumonia, we don't see them very often. So therefore, some people say it's been eradicated or it's not here in my country or in my society or in my community. So if we don't see the disease, we think we don't need to vaccinate against. So I think a lot of people feel we don't need to do it because the disease is not here. Some people are just don't get around to it. That's a big problem as well, vaccine access. So some people want to vaccinate their kids, but either the timing of it or the GP did not send them a reminder or it was not easy to get. That's a big thing. So actually, before I go on to that, I want to say about vaccine hesitancy. So it's the vaccine hesitancy has been defined as a spectrum from refusing all vaccination to accepting all vaccination. And people are in on this spectrum somewhere. It's not just COVID vaccine then, it's for all vaccines. People have a... Uh, uh, People have ideas about different vaccines, yes. So even people who didn't want to inject, who didn't want to give MMR jab to their kids, they they probably accepted other vaccines, but they were just more cautious about the MMR vaccine, yeah. So yeah, vaccine hesitancy depends on, it's very context-specific, yes. Yeah, but I guess if we have a background of hesitancy, then we already have the background. So we might be more likely to be hesitant against the COVID vaccine if we are in the background. We, we, so it also depends on trust, trusting the government, trust. Yeah, a lot of it is trust, whether we trust governments, whether we trust pharmaceutical companies, whether we trust healthcare practitioners. And if we have a high trust of the state, let's say, in the background, then we are more likely to accept the vaccine that the government is giving us. So it was quite interesting. There was a paper, there was a study done in France, and they asked people, will you take a COVID vaccine when it's available? And they also asked them, which party did you vote for in the last uh, presidential election? And what they found was the people at the extreme, let's say the far right, they were more likely to be hesitant, to say, no, I won't take. So people who have less trust in government, that also seems to translate into less trust in the vaccine and therefore more hesitancy. One question people are saying a lot is, um, this vaccine was rushed through. How do I know it's safe, yeah? This is where I think we probably come to the nub of the issue. The key reason that many people who otherwise have no issue with vaccines are tempted to look askance at the coronavirus vaccines seems to be the speed with which they've been developed. Speed carries with it connotations of rushing, of carelessness, of being slapdash and hasty, and none of those words are ones that you would want anywhere near a needle going into your arm. 
Luckily, none of those words could be fairly applied to the development process of any of the major vaccines, as Colin, Christie, and Sudax, each of whom has pretty serious experience in vaccine development, explain. There's a very good article that's uh, written by the COVID symptom study. Uh, how did we make it so fast? How have COVID-19 vaccines been developed so fast? So there are... And I think we are not really communicating that to the public. We have, uh, yeah, the, we have said in the news that, oh, usually it takes 10 years to make a vaccine. How did we manage to make it in 10 months? Yeah. So obviously then people are like, you told me 10 months ago, it takes 10 years. <laughs> and now you're telling me you've already made it. What did you do? And we are not, now we are not telling people on the news. I don't see this on the news. How, how did it happen so fast? So firstly, is uh, we, are, we have adopted and adapted, right? We have adopted technology that has existed. We've been making vaccines for decades. So we have used the same technology. The mRNA obviously is new, but I'll come to that in a minute. But making vaccine, the way we make vaccines, we've been making it for decades, so we already know it. So it is not like we're not starting from a blank sheet of paper. Even the mRNA vaccine, they have, it has been worked on for years, and there are even clinical trials that we have used mRNA for in the cancer field. And that's why they could be so fast, because they were already using this technology for cancer. So then they could adapt it very quickly for, for COVID. The adenovirus vaccine, the Chad AstraZeneca Oxford one, they have been working on adenovirus as a carrier for vaccines for 10, 15 years. They already had vaccine, they already worked for SARS-CoV-1 and they already used that technology for MERS. So when COVID uh, SARS-CoV-2 came, they could very quickly use the same carrier, the same technology, and put the genes of the new virus into that technology. So, so these are tried and tested technologies that have existed. Uh, now, we knew about the virus very quite early, and the genome was provided, the genetic code was provided in January. So as soon as that was provided, there's so much work that could be done by so many people. So, so, so people just started working on that very quickly. And we knew that it was a spike protein, which was a good target for the vaccine because of the, uh, the work on SARS-CoV-1. And we already know coronaviruses from seasonal colds. So there's already uh, a lot of research and knowledge about coronaviruses. So, for example, I'm in a team developing a vaccine for COVID, and at my first meeting, I asked a question about this, and that question did not come on that first day in March or April last year. It's because I've been working on vaccines, developing vaccines since 1994. So I already knew about adjuvants, and I already knew about how to develop vaccines. One could say I've been working on vaccines for, what, 94 to now is like 20, almost 20 years. So, yeah, we can't say we just started 10 months ago because the knowledge is there. Now, the other thing is what happened when COVID came, there was 
governments put a lot of money on the table for researchers to apply for to do research in this. But right now, there are so many people and lots of researchers who are work working on different viruses and even researchers who were not working on viruses started working on this virus and this vaccine, uh, this disease. So there were many people and there was much money. And so I don't think anybody has counted how many researchers worldwide are currently working on. Well, we know how many vaccines are in preclinical stages, yeah? Like 70 or some or more than that. And this doesn't normally happen for other vaccines. And that's why normally we don't make vaccines so fast. Not that many people are not working on the same problem. There isn't that much money. And people have shared a lot. Normally, we have to wait for papers to be published, which takes months. Here, people were putting their data and their results online very quickly. So therefore, people could read about the new discoveries very quickly and therefore adjust their own research. So we were learning a lot very fast. Um, so somebody, this is a nice quote here. Professor o uh, Peter Openshaw from Imperial College, London, said in a recent webinar, okay, I'll, I'll just quote this, yeah? In this case, there's been so much money poured into the process that it's like the milk float has a police escort and all the traffic lights are on green. It doesn't mean to say that the route has been, that has been taken is any different. All the normal safety checks are in place. So basically, we did the same route of how we make vaccines, it's just that we made it faster. We're not really communicating this, that why it has happened so fast. We're not communicating this very well. I don't see this on TV. Here in the U.S., you know, we have two primary vaccines. And I guess in Australia, you guys just approved the, the Pfizer vaccine. And so those are both lipid nanoparticle-based vaccines. Uh, and so it's my understanding the Pfizer platform has been around in other therapeutics uh, gone through other clinical trials, just not with the mRNA expressing coronavirus. So it may be therapeutic uh, nucleic acids, or it may be um, other therapies that could be using that same platform. So they basically have kind of used the same building blocks, um, just with different patterns inside them. Uh, similarly with Moderna, Moderna's, their, their platform has been around for some time, uh, just with different mRNA in it. And so that's, you know, so it's been explored for a long time. It was just that, you know, once the sequence came out and they could get the mRNA, then they're able to package it inside their building blocks and then produce the vaccine. So it's not as though they started, you know, from scratch, uh, you know, in January of, you know, 2020. It was something that had been around for, for some time before that. For the most part, they've had to go through kind of the same rigor maybe at a much accelerated pace uh, than, you know, other other drugs would as, would as well or other vaccines would as well, right? So they've gone through three phases of clinical trials um, where, you know, the first one is just to kind of establish dose and safety. The second one is really to evaluate that dose. And then the third one would be more in, um, uh, you know, testing the efficacy of the patients, right? Which is kind of what we saw in the news. We saw, we saw these reports come out with the news, which was kind of interesting to see that in real time. Um, and as I said, you know, these have been used before, like the Moderna formulation has been used in a dengue vaccine before, um, as well as others. Um, 
And so those had gone to clinical trials as well with, again, just a different mRNA sequence in there. Uh, and so, you know, they, they've gone through these with increasing pools of, of people. Uh, with Moderna clinical trial for the third one, they really did a great job of incorporating a diverse group with diverse ages, which was exceptional because we don't always see that in a clinical trial. Uh, and so that, that, I think, puts a lot of faith into their study because they have, you know, uh, diversity as far as race and ethnicity, as far as age. Um, and so I think that's a good snapshot of the population um, for, for what they could do um, in the time allotted. And so, and you do see in the UK um, people doing uh, what they would call a challenge where they're, they're exposing vaccinated patients to coronavirus. Uh, that's not how the US trials were conducted. But that could also be a more rigorous test where you know that everyone has been exposed as opposed to vaccinating a population, sending them out into the world where they may be exposed, um, which is kind of how the Moderna and the, the Pfizer trials were, as well as many of the other ones. Yeah, well, it certainly did make a big difference, especially the speed to get started. Um, this coronavirus that causes COVID-19 is very similar to the SARS virus. And so the virus itself is the one that caused COVID-19 is called SARS coronavirus 2 or SARS-CoV-2. And so that's because it does share a very strong similarity with the coronavirus that caused SARS. And it, what it meant is that when the virus was isolated and its genome was sequenced, it, it was possible to tell very quickly that this was a very close variant of SARS. And it meant that structurally, the proteins that are involved in the virus were already known. So there was quite a lot of work done on SARS. This is, SARS goes back to, I think it was 2003. I can't quite remember. I think 2003. So there's been quite a lot of basic virology done on that virus since. And when SARS-CoV-2 came along, it sort of fitted in very closely with what we already know. And what that meant is that... Um, the spike protein that everyone's familiar with, which we use as the vaccine, um, really had very strong resemblance to the spike protein of the SARS. And it meant that we could immediately understand structurally what it looked like. And also, when scientists began to isolate that piece of DNA and make the spike protein, they were able to crystallize it well, they didn't crystallize it. They actually used a technique called cryo-TEM, but they were able to form the structure and very quickly, uh, within just weeks of the virus being isolated, there was a, a complete understanding of what the spike protein looked like structurally. And therefore, it was possible to think about how to make a vaccine. And really, with the with the technology that's available for making, um, encoding the, this protein and making a vaccine using mRNA or, or in the case of the adenoviruses, the DNA, it was possible to make a, a candidate vaccine for SARS-CoV-1 within weeks of the virus being isolated. And, and it meant that it started being tested in humans incredibly quickly, much quicker than anything in the past. So we, it was literally just two months after the virus was isolated that there was actually a vaccine being tested in humans. Quite remarkable. Going back to the distinction that Maria drew around relevant and irrelevant considerations, 
At least one set of considerations that must be relevant is the process that a vaccine has to go through to make sure it's safe and effective before it gets jabbed into your arm. You can look at that from a research perspective, so how do clinical trials work, what do we hope to get out of each stage, etc. Or you can look at it from a regulatory perspective, whose job is it to assess that data to make sure that the trials were well designed and tell us what they purport to be telling us, and to decide what level of risk is acceptable. We asked Colin to give us a rundown of the process, and we also asked Professor Simon Bell, who, as you may recall from our very first episode, is the director of the Monash Centre for Medicine Use and Safety. So this kind of thing is right in his wheelhouse. The time when people are first aware that a vaccine is being tested is probably the first clinical trial in humans, and we call that a phase one clinical trial. It's designed really just to test the safety. It's a small-scale trial. And it's really to immediately test whether there are any unusual adverse events. Before that, there's a lot of testing that leads up to, um, if you like, the confidence that the vaccine product is safe to put into humans. So there's a whole series of tests that have to be done before you can get into a human safety study. Um, but that safety study is really literally what it sounds like. You, take, you have human volunteers and you basically do a dose escalation study. So you start off with a dose which is less than you think you'll need, and then you escalate the dose, having given a low dose, to a, to a dose which you think is probably about right for a vaccine. And then you go beyond that um, to a dose which you think is more than you need. And all through that, you're looking for signs of adverse events in what is relatively small number of people, but nevertheless is enough to give you the confidence that you can go to the next stage. And the next stage is an efficacy study. That is to say, um, is there any evidence that the vaccine prevents the disease? So in the first study, you will collect information about antibodies that are produced, but you're not really testing whether or not the patients are, whether it prevents them from getting the disease. That's, that takes place in phase two or phase three, which are efficacy studies on different scales. The phase two scale is relatively small, but the phase three scale, which is the studies that have been done recently on these vaccines that are heading towards general use, is a, is a really large number of people. So the phase three studies that have been done recently involve about 40,000 people. And it means that half of them have been given the vaccine and half of them have been given a placebo or an alternative vaccine, which is not COVID-19. In the case of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, the placebo is actually a different vaccine. In the case of the mRNA, um, I think it was just um, a nonsense mRNA, which wouldn't provide the vaccine response. So in the end, um, when they go to the regulatory authority and say, we believe this is safe for, for general use, and they're asked for a license, the regulatory authority is looking at evidence from this 40,000 patient study. And they're asking all sorts of questions about efficacy and safety, because obviously now there's a huge amount of extra information about safety. And then they're balancing that um, knowledge of safety and efficacy against the need. So obviously in the pandemic, there's um, a huge need. And so that analysis of risk versus benefit becomes slightly different. 
And in what we're seeing now in those countries that have approved the vaccines, they've approved it perhaps earlier than they would normally do. And they've approved it under um, regulation, which they're calling emergency use. So um, we heard a lot in the, in the early stages of the vaccine development. The commentators were saying, well, it takes years to develop a vaccine. Uh, but we've seen now that this year, it's taken approximately, what, 10 months, 11 months to develop the vaccine. It's very much quicker than normal. But that's mainly because they're approving the vaccines a little earlier than they would normally do because of the, the urgency of the pandemic. So the emergency use, what they're really doing is saying, we think we have enough information at the moment to go ahead and use this vaccine in the pandemic. But we're going to continue to monitor during the use and any adverse events that occur will be added, will, will add to the information um, and, you know, could require modifications. Um, so I think under normal circumstances, a full license to use a vaccine for general use would not normally be granted for a little bit longer. Really, the follow-up of the patients in the efficacy study would normally carry on for a few months, maybe a year, rather than what will have happened here, which is really only one or two months. The TGA, or the, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, they are responsible for assessing the, the safety uh, of medicines and vaccines before they can be used in Australia. And so when the TGA does that, they assess new medicines and vaccines for, for safety, quality and efficacy. And they'll only register a medicine or a vaccine if it meets those uh, parameters. And when they do that, they consider whether or not the benefits are likely to, to outweigh the risks. Uh, in terms of uh, vaccines uh, in Australia at the moment, of course, the COVID vaccine is generating a lot of interest and in, in publicity. Uh, and we're fairly fortunate in Australia, uh, at least in comparison to, to most parts of Europe and North America, uh, that COVID is certainly at the moment is largely um, fairly contained and therefore the, the risks and benefits of, of vaccination um, are important to consider, of course, at a, at an Australian, uh, from an Australian perspective. The TGA takes advice from a committee called the Advisory Committee on Vaccines and the, the committee is actually chaired by our um, Monash University Professor Alan Cheng, who's an infectious diseases uh, physician and he holds an appointment with the Department of Epidemiology and Preventive Medicine um, here at the university. But the committee also includes uh, other medical practitioners. There's a, a nurse practitioner, a pharmacist, and also a consumer as well. So the committee will uh, make give advice based on uh, the yeah the benefit and the risk of the medication. So that includes considering things like how serious the condition is that the vaccine will be used for, but importantly whether the the vaccine whether there's any evidence of adverse events, either acute adverse events or possible adverse events after prolonged use or potentially inappropriate use. The TGA uses what's called a risk management approach. And so it's worth recognising that any therapeutic intervention doesn't come without some element of some element of risk. And so uh, the TGA considers whether or not the benefits are likely to outweigh uh, any potential risks. And this is a process that we use uh, successfully for medicines at the moment. So in Australia, for example, we have a scheduling system where medicines are available for general sale, or they may be pharmacy-only medicines, the Schedule II medicines, or pharmacist-only medicines, Schedule III, or, or prescription medicines. And so uh, they apply the same risk management approach to, to a vaccine um, as well.
So the what they do is they consider the available uh, clinical trial data, and so based on that clinical trial data, they they consider whether or not that vaccine is likely to be, um, or the risk, the benefits are likely to outweigh the risks for use use in Australia. So they consider things like how well the trial was conducted. Was it a a rigorous and well-designed trial or how long that trial was and whether the trial enrolled a, a sufficient number of participants um, that represent the groups of people for whom the vaccine is likely to be used, um, used for. Um, in Australia, we have a system where consumers and health professionals and also companies, they can submit reports of adverse events that occur. So the TGA maintains a database of adverse event notifications and, and these adverse events are information about these adverse events is made publicly available. And we also have an active surveillance system for vaccines. So that's where uh, people are prompted to respond by uh, text message or email, um, usually in the days after receiving the vaccine. And so there's other examples of vaccines being monitored through this active surveillance system, such as the, the seasonal flu vaccine or HPV vaccines. Um, so there's a, there's a range of different um, safeguards that are in place both before the, the medicinal vaccine is registered and then also after the, the vaccine is registered as well. So that's all we have time for on this episode of Side Effects May Vary. Thanks to our guests Christy Ainsley, Morgan Tier, Maria O'Sullivan, Sudax Murdan, Simon Bell and Colin Powton. This episode produced by Divya Krishnan, Kate Carthew, Dave Rogers and me, John Palmer, with music by Dave Rogers. Yeah.